All right, well, uh, a university uh, is an institution of higher learning, right? When you go to a university, you can learn anything you can possibly imagine, from math to science to philosophy, music, the liberal arts. Uh, a university instructs every diverse field all under one roof. So diverse fields, one roof. Uh, the universe is uh, one gigantic thing, right? But it's composed of a million, billion, trillion little things, relatively speaking, of course. Uh, stars, galaxies, uh, comets, black holes, quasars, dark matter, all of these things uh, comprise the universe. If you look at pictures from the Hubble telescope, uh, it's just amazing to see the incredible diversity in the universe, but it's still all part of God's one creation. Uh, these words, universe and university, they're compound words. Uh, uni meaning one and verse, uh, diversity, more than one. And so we, we get oneness out of diversity. That's what these words mean. And diversity is good. I mean, it's clear, obviously, from looking around, uh, looking around at nature, uh, looking around in the ocean, uh, looking around in the sky, uh, how God must love diversity. Uh, but more than anything else, we look around at other people and we see incredible diversity uh, as we look around the world and see the various different uh, peoples that God has created, different shapes, different sizes, different colors, different uh, cultures, different backgrounds. Uh, God loves diversity, and so uh, he made us diverse. But together, even though we have all of these differences, we make up one human race. So un unity out of diversity. <clears throat> and so God created one more thing uh, that's very diverse, and yet he wants unity in it. And that's the organism that he created in the first century, which is called the church. Uh, what we're doing here today, we are the church. We are gathered together as the church. And so he wants the same unity that he uh, created uh, among people groups uh, and among uh, his, his uh, various uh, cultures and countries of the world. Uh, he wants the same unity among diversity in the church as he wants from the rest of creation. Now, that's what makes Romans 16 so interesting. Now, we could look at this chapter and we could say, oh, just, let's just blow this off. It's just a bunch of names and we have no idea who these people were and they don't mean anything to us. But I don't want us to gloss over this chapter because there's so much in here, so many lessons that are applicable for the church today. Uh, so before we actually dive into the text, I just want to make a couple of observations about the diversity of the church and the unity of the church and the diligence of these nearly anonymous saints uh, who lived in that church there. So uh, the diversity of the church first. Uh, as we come to Romans chapter 16, uh, Paul names in this whole chapter, he names 28 different individuals, uh, and he names most of them by name, although a couple of people he refers to, uh, like Rufus's mother, not naming her by name, but naming her uh, by who she was. Uh, and he mentioned five different people groups. So, so there are these churches that met in various houses, and there's the household of Aristob Aristobulus, the household of Herodian, all these different people groups. Uh, he mentioned 17 men, and he mentioned nine women uh, among this group of disciples uh, that he was talking about. So contrary to popular belief about Paul, uh, he loved women, he esteemed women, he highly respected them, and they played a very important role uh, in the first century church. Uh, there are slaves on this list, at least five uh, slaves made Paul's list, including uh, Ampliatus and Urbanus. 
uh, and they probably would have been on the poorer end of the spectrum. But then there is the household of Aristobulus, the household of Herodian, uh, the household of Narcissus. There may have been some more wealthy people in that group. Uh, Paul named Jews as well as Gentiles, marrieds and singles, uh, women and men, slaves and free, uh, all kinds of different people. This is an extremely diverse church in first century Rome of different genders, marital status, social classes, occupations, and ethnicities. So the church was very diverse. And yet at the same time, uh, there was unity in this church. These people met in house churches. Uh, First century house churches were not very large uh, for the most part. Uh, they gathered as many people into them as they could. They didn't have beautiful buildings like this building that we have here. In fact, the first uh, actual church building that we know of uh, was in Syria and not until the third century. So they met in house churches for centuries before they started building buildings. And their houses, of course, were too small to fit the entire Roman Christian congregation in there, so they met in groups. Uh, some met at this, these, this person's house, some met at that person's house, but yet still they were one church. And why is that? Well, it's because the church is not a building, right? The church is not a building. The church is the body of believers who have received Jesus Christ as Savior and, and will spend eternity together in heaven. And so uh, while the church is on earth, we are all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, regardless of which church we belong to or what ethnic group or social class we belong to, because what unites the church is Jesus Christ. That's what unites the church. So the church is diverse. The church is unified. And let's talk about the diligence of the saints for a second. Other than Priscilla and Aquila, all these other people that Paul mentions, uh, they would be unknown to history except for the fact that Paul wrote their name in this one particular place in the letter. Uh, there may be a couple of individuals who actually we do know from history, but those are unknown, debatable, we're not really sure. But my point is, is that the church was made up of just regular people, uh, just working for the Lord. The church was not made up of you know, rock star pastors and celebrity evangelists who go around on preaching tours, selling books and, and tickets and making a whole ton of money. Uh, it wasn't made up of people who were trying to get something from the church. They're people who are trying to give something to the church, using their spiritual gifts, working diligently for the Lord, uh, largely unpraised, uh, largely unknown, just working hard for the building up of the church in gratitude for the grace that Christ showed them in their salvation. So this church consisted of regular people who just wanted to serve the Lord however they could according to their gifts, and nobody seeking to stand out among the rest of the congregation. Uh, they're all like worker bees, like worker ants, just doing their job, building up the church. Sinners, yes, right? They're all sinners. We are all sinners. But yet, uh, they worked hard uh, to create a unified church, to, to create converts, to make converts, and then to build up uh, the, the people in the church, edifying the saints. And this is a noble task, but it's hard work, and it's largely unpraised, largely unnoticed, largely anonymous work. And that means it has to be empowered by humility and empowered by the Holy Spirit if it's going to work. And that's what these people were. And that's a model that we ought to follow as saints of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so the diversity of the church, the unity of the church, the diligence of the saints. Now let's talk about uh, these greetings that Paul sent out. 
So first he names Phoebe, Priscilla, and Aquila. Verses 1 and 2, I command to you, or commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has been a helper of many and of myself as well. So most scholars agree that Phoebe is the one who took this letter from Corinth that Paul had written and delivered it to the church in Rome. Now she was from a place called Centria. So if you look up on this map, uh, Corinth is over there on, on this side and Centria is about seven miles southeast of Corinth and that is a seaport, a, a Corinth's seaport. Uh, so a lot of commerce was done through the city of Centria and that's where she was from. Now, I imagine that Phoebe was no delicate flower, right? This is hard, hard work that she's about to do. She's about to uh, take this letter. She's about to get on a ship and take that letter to Rome. Uh, she would be accompanied by others, of course, for safety reasons. But uh, this is hard work. This is a tough uh, deal that she's been asked to do. Uh, it was unsafe to travel in those days, and particularly by sea. Uh, you never know what might happen to her. And she was carrying one of the most important possessions of the Christian church, the letter to the Romans with her, right? So how much did Paul trust Phoebe uh, if, she, if he uh, gave this letter to her to deliver? And so Paul writes this letter of commendation uh, to the church uh, with Phoebe uh, as well. Uh, saying that uh, I'm trusting you, Phoebe, and I want you people in uh, Corinth, or I'm sorry, in Rome, to receive her well. So imagine uh, you open this letter uh, to the Romans uh, that's delivered by Phoebe, and, and you're saying, who is this Phoebe? And then you get this letter, and you see it's from the Apostle Paul, who's commending Phoebe in the highest possible manner. Uh, I would imagine uh, that, that uh, they would then turn around and give her whatever aid she needed, as Paul requested. Uh, she was uh, an amazing woman. Apparently, uh, she was a benefactor and a patron of uh, Paul and of many others. Uh, it says in the, in the verse that she was a great help to many others and to me personally. Uh, so this word protasis that Paul uses for the word help means a benefactor or a patron. And it's the only place that that particular word is used in the whole New Testament. So she must have been very special, donating out of her own funds uh, to support Paul and to support others. And Paul called her a servant of the church. Now that's the Greek word dakonos, which we have been, uh, we've, we've talked about that a couple times. That can, mean, uh, that can mean the word deacon, or that can mean the word servant. Uh, and we don't know exactly how Paul used it in this particular uh, instance, uh, but that word was used for the office of deacon. Uh, and it's also used generally as the word servant. So we don't know whether Paul is referring to the office of deacon here, but there are a lot of scholars who think that the office of deacon had been established already and that Phoebe was a deacon of the church. Uh, but either way, whether she was a deacon or a servant, it's hard to imagine giving Phoebe a greater responsibility than delivering this letter uh, that was of such Christian importance to the letter in Rome, uh, to the church in Rome. So uh, this, we're, we're going to start a long list of saints, right? We're going to talk about a whole bunch of saints. But I want us to notice that the first two who are listed are women, right? Phoebe, and now as we come to verses 3 and 5, uh, 3 through 5, Priscilla is the second one mentioned. So greet Prisca, that's a shortened version of Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles, and also greet the church 
that is in her house. So we know about Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, we've read about them in Acts. They're mentioned several times there uh, in uh, the book of Acts where Luke mentions them. Uh, Aquila was a Jewish tent maker, and he was from the pro uh, province of Pontus. Pontus is up there on the uh, border of the Black Sea. It's the uh, north end of Galatia, uh, and so that's where he was from. Uh, he was married to Aquila, and uh, Priscilla and Aquila were living in this province. Uh, uh, well, they moved to Rome at a point in time. Uh, that's where they lived. Uh, but then Claudius, the emperor at the time, expelled all the Jews from Rome in 49 AD. So they had to get out of there. And so where did they go? Well, they went to Corinth, and that's where they met Paul. They became, became fast friends with Paul. They stayed with Paul. They ministered with Paul in that area. And they also went to him uh, with him to Ephesus. We learn about that in Acts chapter 18. And so their friendship was so close, their bond so tight that Paul says they actually risked their lives uh, to save Paul. Uh, and though we don't know exactly what incident that refers to, uh, this was a, a very... Uh, nervy couple, right? Uh, very strong, very courageous people who went out there and risked their necks uh, for Paul. And so when the edict uh, expelling the Jews from Rome was lifted, it looks like Priscilla and Aquila moved back to Rome, and that's where they had this house church. So they had this house church in Rome, but not only that, we read from 1 Corinthians 16 that they also had a house church in Ephesus, so these two are having churches wherever they go, gathering the saints to themselves and just being an incredible encouragement. Now they're mentioned, Priscilla and Aquila, six times mentioned in the book of Acts. And four of those times, Priscilla is actually mentioned first before her husband Aquila, which would naturally be out of order. You would name the husband first, so that indicates that uh, she must have had some higher social status perhaps, or maybe she was of greater importance to Paul in ministry for whatever reason. But again, what we see is uh, evidence of Paul's great esteem for women. And every time Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in the New Testament, it's they who are ministering to Paul, not vice versa, right? Paul is typically the one ministering to other people, but now here we have Priscilla and Aquila always, when they're mentioned, are ministering to Paul. So it's nice when you're doing ministry. Paul is thousands of miles from home, right? You get to a new place, you meet this uh, couple who are kindred spirits, right? And you can do ministry together uh, with them. When we moved to Texas, we didn't know anybody here practically, and uh, I went to seminary and uh, sat right next to a guy who became my best friend in seminary. In our first class, so we just got sat next to each other, and uh, our families hung out together. We, we just had a great time together, encouraging each other, helping each other through the grind of seminary, because shared experience makes for deep and lasting and meaningful friendships. And that's what Paul, uh, Priscilla and Aquila were to Paul, and to many others, too. We know that they were gifted at Christian hospitality and Christian discipleship because of the way they treated Apollos. Remember, Apollos was a gifted, dynamic speaker, and he's going out preaching all about Jesus, but he only knew about his baptism from John. So his knowledge was deficient. <clears throat> Priscilla and Aquila recognize, well, here is a man of considerable talent. He can preach the word. He's, he's eager to go teach people, but he doesn't have the full knowledge of the gospel. So what do they do? They pull him aside. They teach him the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and we can only imagine uh, how many more people Apollos taught as a result of being properly instructed, and how many more Priscilla and Aquila ministered to not only in the house church in Rome, but also the house church in Corinth. What an impact 
these two had. Uh, so Phoebe, Priscilla, and Aquila. Now, we will move on to this list of relatively unknown people. They were known to Paul, uh, but not known to us, uh, diligent workers of the Lord. Uh, verse, uh, the second half of verse 5, greet Epinatus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. So here's a guy, Epinatus, completely unknown to history, except that Paul inserted his name into this letter. He was the first convert in Asia, which means that Paul would have met him on his third missionary journey. Remember, we talked about it last week when um, Paul was trying to go to Asia on his second missionary journey. Uh, he was prevented by the Holy Spirit from going in here. So he went to Macedonia and to Corinth and then back around again home. And then on his third missionary journey, that's when he made it to Asia. So that's when he would have met Epinatus. Uh, and uh, Paul loved this man. He called him dear friend or one beloved by me. We don't know anything about him, what he did, but he was a great encouragement to Paul. Uh, greet Mary, who worked... Whoop. Hang on. Greet Mary, uh, who has worked hard for you. Here's another lady. We don't know anything about her, uh, except that in some manuscripts, the name is written Miriam, uh, which leads scholars to believe that she was a Jewish lady. And that's all we know about her, except that Paul says she worked hard for the Lord. Now, this word for worked hard is the Greek word kapio. And it's used five times in this little uh, section here. And every time Paul uses this word, he's talking about women who worked hard in the Lord uh, for the church. And so more evidence of Paul's respect and esteem for women. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen, and fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who were also in Christ before me. Well, we know nothing about this couple either, except for what Paul tells us here. In fact, we don't even know for certain that Junius was a female. Uh, there are discrepancies in, in how you could read uh, her or his name in the Greek. It could be a male. It could be a female. Uh, most scholars believe that it, it's probably a female and that they were probably a husband and wife team like Priscilla and Aquila, but we really don't know. What we do know is that Paul called them his kinsmen, so again, that means that they would be Jewish. He also called them fellow prisoners. Uh, Luke doesn't record anything about being in prison uh, with Andronicus and Junius, so we don't know anything about that incident, uh, but they were certainly spending time with Paul in prison. And they were outstanding among the apostles, meaning not that they were apostles, but that they were known to the 12 apostles and Paul himself. So you can imagine the impact of their ministry to be known uh, by those esteemed apostles. And they were in Christ before Paul. Now, Paul, by this time, had been in Christ, a believer, for at least 20 years. And so uh, Andronicus and Junius had preceded them in Christ. And so that would make them uh, very early disciples, perhaps even among the original converts at Pentecost. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. There is uh, one of the oldest Christian cemeteries in Rome called the Catacomb of Domitilia. Uh, in the catacombs, there is this tomb there uh, that has an inscription on it that says Ampliat, A-M-P-L-I-A-T. And a lot of scholars think that that Ampliat uh, inscription may uh, signify the tomb of Ampliatus, this man that Paul is talking about here. Now, 
that may be wishful thinking. That was a very common slave name uh, in Rome at that time. So most likely it wasn't the actual grave of this Ampliatus, but it is pretty cool to think that it's possible that this man that Paul mentioned is buried there uh, in that church in Rome. Uh, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in the Lord, and Stachys, my beloved. Urbanus is a Roman male slave name. His name means belonging to the city. Uh, Paul called him a fellow worker. And Stachys is also a common name for a Greek slave, uh, which means, or, uh, means ear of grain. I don't know why you would name your kid ear of grain, but that was the name that his parents chose for him. And he also was beloved, the same as Ampliatus. Uh, this word beloved, just by the way, is from the Greek word agape, which we know well, uh, this, this love that he had for uh, them and that they had for him. A greet Apelles, verse 10, the approved in Christ. Uh, so here's Apelles. We don't know anything about him. It's a male name, a Greek male name, uh, but he was tried and found to be trustworthy. And uh, we wish we knew what incident Paul was referring to. Maybe there was some specific incident where Apelles proved to be a faithful believer. We just don't know. Uh, but he probably, uh, like Priscilla and Aquila, worked hard and suffered in some way to spread the gospel. And just by way of note, in these verses we see that life in first century Rome as a Christian was not easy. Uh, this is a hard, hard thing that they're trying to do. Remember, this is Nero's backyard, right? This is the Roman emperor's backyard that they're trying to spread the word of Christ in. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Now, there is an Aristobulus who we know from history. We know that Herod the Great had a grandson uh, by the name of King Herod Agrippa I. Uh, Herod Agrippa I is the one who beheaded James in Acts chapter 12. Now, we know that Agrippa was a friend of the Roman Emperor Claudius, and that Agrippa had a brother by the name of Aristobulus. So, was this the same Aristobulus? We don't know. Uh, but it could have been. This could have been the Aristobulus that was, uh, that was Agrippa's brother, and so he likely would have been friends with the emperor as well. So Paul may have had friends in the emperor's own household. And Paul greeted those who are in the Lord, which is another way to say in Christ. Uh, he had believing friends, uh, perhaps in very high places. Uh, greet those who are, uh, greet Herodian, my kinsman. Again, don't know anything about him, but a kinsman indicates a Jewish person and maybe from the household of Herod. Greet those from the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Uh, John Calvin and a lot of other commentators think that this Narcissus is a Tiberius Claudius Narcissus who was a very famous freed slave uh, back in first century Rome. He was a very wealthy man, exerted a lot of influence on the Emperor Claudius at the time. Uh, so he would have been a Gentile, and so Paul may have had friends in his house as well. So think about Paul. He's got friends in uh, low places, as Garth Brooks would say, right? But also friends in very high places as well. He's got them from either end of uh, the society of Rome, and that's a pretty amazing thing. Uh, he had believing friends all over the place. Greet Trephina and uh, Trephosa, workers in the Lord. Again, the same word, copio. Hard workers in the Lord, these two. Uh, a lot of sco uh, scholars think that these two were sisters, perhaps twins. Uh, their names mean delicate and dainty. 
uh, which I doubt very much that they were because it's not easy to be a worker in the Lord. Uh, so I don't know, probably misnamed people. They probably should have been named, you know, fearless and courageous or something like that. Uh, dainty and uh, delicate, probably not right. But we see this theme here of Paul giving thanks, being grateful to all these women who are working hard to spread the gospel. And then greet Rufus, verse 13, a choice man in the Lord and also his mother and mine. So some think that this Rufus is the same Rufus that uh, Mark referred to in chapter 15 of his gospel. Uh, that would be the son of Simon of Cyrene, who the Romans forced to carry Jesus's cross on the way to his crucifixion. Here's what Mark 15 says. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. Now, Mark wrote his gospel from Rome, and Mark is the only one to name these two sons of uh, Simon of Cyrene. Why would he do that? Well, maybe uh, these two sons, Alexander and Rufus, had moved uh, from Jerusalem and had been now members and, and pillars of the church in Rome and were, would be well known to, uh, to Mark's Roman audience and to Paul's Roman audience. And so maybe it is possible uh, that the Rufus here being referred to is the son of Simon of Cyrene. And that's pretty crazy to think about because when you think about that, uh, if Rufus's mother is the one who is ministering to Paul, and this is the, now the wife of Simon and Cyrene, uh, can you imagine the conversations that might have happened around that table, right? Here's Paul talking about how uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ knocked him off his horse and, and uh, caused him to, to uh, receive the Holy Spirit and believe and become the greatest missionary the church has ever known. And Simon of Cyrene telling his story about, well, I was just walking by on my way from here to there and these Romans pressed me into duty. I had to carry his cross. I did it against my will, but now here I am saved uh, and a servant of the church. Uh, what amazing stories they would have around the story to tell. And here's Rufus and Alexander, their kids, running around at their feet, hearing these stories while uh, Simon's wife, uh, Rufus's mother, is ministering to them all. Uh, it's amazing when you think about it, to how you can put meat on the bones of what Paul gives us here and think about uh, how Rufus's mother was ministering to Paul, who was so far from his own home. In fact, Paul called her like a second mother to him. That's how important she was to him. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. These are all common Greek names among the slaves in Rome. Uh, Paul mentions them all together, so it's possible, maybe even probable, that they were all members of the same house church. And then greet Philologos and Julia, Neros and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Uh, Philologos and Julia may have been another husband and wife team, or they could have been brother and sister, but the evidence suggests that, she, that they were both uh, servants in the Roman government and pa perhaps even in the emperor's house. Uh, these were Gentile Christians and probably, again, all members of a different house church in Rome. And so, again, we see in all of these names from uh, verse 1 all the way here through verse 15, we see uh, the great diversity and the great unity of the church in Rome. And we've been talking about the unity of this church since we began uh, in chapter 14 all the way through 15 and now into chapter 16. Uh, Paul's encouragement for unity that we see in verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now the holy kiss 
was a cultural greeting of the day, which I praise the Lord does not exist anymore in our cultural moment. Uh, in most times, this was not a mouth-to-cheek kiss. This was a mouth-to-mouth kiss uh, greeting each other uh, in the Lord. Now, this has evolved differently over the centuries, praise God. And uh, what we have now is that uh, in, in many churches, in fact, in some Eastern Orthodox churches, they still practice this, but uh, not in most churches. Um, the Holy Kiss became what, what is called the sign of peace. And so, in fact, the Catholic Church adopted this, the, the sign of peace, in the middle of their church service. They say, now let us offer each other the sign of peace. And everybody shakes hands and gives each other a hug. Uh, and that's how they do it in the Catholic Church. For, for us, uh, hugs and handshakes uh, are, are perfect, perfectly appropriate uh, as the equivalent of the Holy Kiss. But however it's practiced, it suggests unity among the body of Christ, a people in fellowship and love for each other, even though there's great diversity among the body of Christ. So when you think about it, what do slaves with a pagan background living in Rome have in common with Jews from a Jewish background living in Jerusalem? And the answer is nothing except that Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ, the salvation of Jesus Christ, and the blood of Jesus Christ unites them. And we see from this that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. And the holy kiss symbolizes this unity that Christians have amongst each other. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, Paul was probably traveling with an entourage. Uh, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Remember, he's collected this gift. He probably has with him representatives from the churches in Asia, or I'm sorry, in Greece, who gave uh, those donations uh, that were going to be taken to the church in Jerusalem. And he was going, these people were going to go with Paul to Jerusalem to deliver that gift. And so these representatives, all the churches, are, are representatives of the churches who have given uh, the money to Jerusalem and now are sending their greetings to Rome as well. And so Paul was a Jew, right? And he's traveling with Gentiles who become Christians from these churches in Greece, and now they're companions together. And they prayed together that the, the Jews in Jerusalem would receive the donation that they were carrying uh, to strengthen the bonds of the church, and that Paul would make it to Rome to have fellowship with these Christians uh, from so far away. And he prayed for the unity. They prayed together for the unity of the church in Rome, and it was sealed with this holy kiss. So Paul was all about unity and fellowship and strengthening the bonds of the church with Jesus Christ as its head. Now, Paul wouldn't tolerate any fractures in the church at all, right? Uh, this was a crucial time in the beginning, the birth of the church, where unity was so crucial and essential for the growth of the church, or else it would have splintered into a million different factions, and Paul didn't want that. So when he was writing to the Gentiles in Ephesians, uh, here is what he said to them. He said, so then you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a temple in the Lord. So we see this one organism called the church being fitted together First the apostles, uh, and Christ is the cornerstone, and then all other peoples and, and uh, countries and nations and cultures being built on top of that one foundation. This is one church. In Galatians 2, you remember that 
when the Jews were not around, Peter would eat with the Gentiles. But then when the Jews came, uh, Peter withdrew from the Gentiles. And Paul saw that and he said, Peter, what are you doing? You're tearing down the church because of your, because of your partiality for one people group over another. And Paul had to call him out for this hypocrisy. Uh, Paul guarded the unity of the church and we ought to guard the unity of the church as well. And we've been talking for the last several weeks about all of the different things that can divide a church, all the things that cause division. And Paul wanted unity, uh, not only among our little body of Christ here, the Grace Redeemer Community Church, but across all of Christianity. And that's why he protected the unity of the church so fiercely. Uh, the church is like a university or a universe. It's oneness out of diversity. Now, the enemy of the unity of the church, of course, is theological differences. Uh, church practices, uh, how we interact with culture, uh, how we let culture influence us in some cases, uh, sadly, uh, but more importantly, how we ought to be influencing culture. Now, Paul, you know, he was no stranger to dealing with problems in the church, right? He had to deal with the unification of Jews and Gentiles. Whatever issues we face, his issue was harder. He had to deal with Jewish and Gentile unity, and that was a monumental task. He had to consider questions of the law. Do Gentiles have to be circumcised? Do they have to keep the law? Uh, what about eating meat, sacrifice to idols? All of those things Paul had to deal with. He had to unite the mature Christians in the faith who had been Christians for 20, 25 years with people who were brand new to the faith and had different sensibilities and sensitivities. And so what happened? He had to unite these, these churches and he fought for unity at all costs because it's one thing to make converts but you can't just leave them out on an island. You have to integrate them into the body of Christ so we can all disciple each other, learn from each other, love each other. And, and Paul saved some of his harshest words for those who were dividers of the church and the Corinthian church. These carnal uh, Christians of Corinth come to mind. Uh, remember he said, uh, some of you follow Paul and some of you follow Apollos and some follow Cephas and some follow Christ. Uh, did, did Paul get crucified for you? Did, did Peter get crucified for you? Of course not. Jesus was crucified for you. He is the one who we follow. And so only Christ died for them. And so what we see from Paul is that he always pointed people to Jesus. And so what is the, what, what is the lesson? And so if we're all looking up at Jesus, we don't have time to look around at each other and our differences. We all worship the same God and we don't see the differences as much as we see what unites us in Christ. And Paul was a pastor. A pastor's job is to point people to Christ. He didn't want their attention. He said, don't follow me, follow Christ. That's what he wanted. Now in our day, we have thousands of denominations because Christians can't seem to agree on anything anymore, right? There are millions of different theological uh, positions that we can take and, and different ideas about church practices and we can fight over whether to have meatloaf or pot roast at the uh, potluck dinner. Uh, all of these things are sources of division and Paul didn't want that. Now, to be sure, there are times when it is necessary to divide, and that's when we're talking about the essentials of the Christian faith. We, we just can't agree uh, with someone who calls themselves a Christian and then deny the very things that make someone a Christian, you know, including the deity of Christ, that he came to earth, took on a human body, lived a perfect life, a life without sin, uh, which qualified him to die on the cross to atone for our sins, that he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and that he's coming again. These are the essentials of the faith. We have to hold strongly to these things. 
But on some of the other things, we don't have to hold as tightly to. We can have peace with people uh, if we have differences of opinion on non-essentials of the faith. And we can invite them to church and, and you know, see how the Holy Spirit will use us, just like uh, Priscilla and Aquila were used by the Lord to teach Apollos. But if it's not an essential of the faith, we can have peace with other people. We can have peace with other churches. And I'm sure the various house churches in Rome didn't all worship exactly the same way, using exactly the same order of worship, using exactly the same style of worship, uh, but they believed the same essentials, and they worshiped the same God. And the source of unity in the church is Jesus Christ. And there's much more that unites us in Christ than divides us. Let's just finish now with a couple of applications. Lessons from the church in Rome. Our call is to work for the Lord. Our call is to work for the Lord. One big problem in church today is consumerism. The idea of what can I get out of a church rather than what can I give to the church. Uh, people go to churches with a checklist of wants, right? They want this kind of music over that kind of music. They want short sermons. They want topical sermons. They don't want to spend a year and a half in the Book of Romans. Uh, they want a bunch of different kind of, of programs for their kids. They want VBS. They want summer camp. They want stained glass windows. You know, all kinds of different things that people want in a church. And Paul made it clear that we are to be workers for the Lord, not takers, uh, consumers, of who only take from the church. Now, we are a body, and we are a body of Christians who love each other and, and who provide for each other. And there are times when we will all find our pos ourselves in position of need. And that's what the body of Christ is for. We give to people uh, and help them in their time of need. But we ought to come to church with the attitude of what can I give to the church? What can I give to the Lord? How can we use our gifts to serve the church and do God's work both locally and globally? So our call is to work for the Lord. And secondly, Galatians 3.28 is true. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. God is not colorblind, right? And we shouldn't be either. We recognize that there is great diversity in the church. Why do you think there is such great diversity in the church? Why do you think God created so many different kinds of people and people groups? Uh, he loves diversity, right? And, and, and so in our missions program, uh, we send money uh, to people who are ministering locally because it is important to minister and to spread the gospel locally. But we also uh, enable people to either serve behind the scenes to, to serve missionaries who are far away on the other side of the globe, or we, we, uh, we, we uh, donate money to those missionaries directly because we want to reach the people groups all across the globe. So we want to we do ministry both far and wide, locally and globally, because God receives more glory when people of all different colors and shapes and sizes and cultures uh, worship him from all across the globe. That is why we do missions the way we do them. God made us all different. And even in a church like ours, where uh, we're predominantly of the same kind, there are still great differences among each and every one of us, and we ought to celebrate those differences while remembering that we're still one in Christ because our differences are nothing compared to the thing that unites us most. 
Jesus Christ. He loves every one of us, and we are all equal before him, and our names are all written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so to each of us, no matter what color, what ethnicity, what background, what social class we come from, when we stand face to face with the Lord, he will say to each one of us who has received him as Savior, well done, good and faithful servant. And this is why the church has to be unified, because we all glorify Jesus Christ and not ourselves, celebrating our differences, but worshiping the Lord who saved us and called us to disciple others and to serve him. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the diversity of the church. We thank you for the unity of the church. We thank you that you call people from all different places and all different countries, cultures, and backgrounds, Lord. We thank you that we are one church, and we thank you that even now, Lord, on on Sunday morning, we are celebrating your birth and your death and your resurrection and the, the promise of your second coming with Christians all over the globe, Lord, who are celebrating the same things. And we celebrate the unity that we have with all those churches in Christ, Lord. And we do long for the day and when you will come again and when we may see you face to face, Lord, and hear those precious words, well done, good and faithful servant. We love you, Lord. We point people to you. We point our attention to you, our focus, our love. And Lord, we just thank you for your grace in saving us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.